Welcome to Clearway Capital Solutions' new podcast series, where we talk to some of the service providers that can assist in building a funds management business, including establishing a locally domiciled vehicle in Australia. I'm Dennis Mathonius, Managing Director from Clearway Capital Solutions, and I'm joined by Johnny Francis, who is the General Manager, Business Development and Custody, Corporate and Trustee Services from Equity Trustees, to answer a number of our questions. Equity Trustees is one of the leading providers of responsible entity and trustee services in Australia. Equity Trustees Corporate Trustee Services Division currently has more than $100 billion in funds under management, acting as a responsible entity for nearly 300 funds and 100 investment managers. Equity Trustees provides a diverse range of trustee and related services across a number of sectors. Hello, Johnny. Initially, what role would a trustee or responsible entity play if a US-based public equity manager sought to establish an investment vehicle in Australia? Hi, Dennis. Uh, Thank you for having me today. I'm delighted to join you. Um, So the the trustee's role uh, really is a critical element for any fund manager looking to establish an investment vehicle in Australia for several reasons. For offshore managers, it, it can be quite daunting trying to understand the trustee model in Australia particularly with respect to trust law and and the more mechanical aspects of operating a fund. Typically, offshore managers may be familiar with corporate vehicles or LPGP structures, but they may not be so familiar with the unit trust structure. So a trustee can really be an offshore manager's ears and eyes on the ground in Australia. A local trustee will understand the market and can really guide prospective asset managers with a number of things including service provider relationships, distribution plans, product design, and they can also help to navigate the ever-increasing regulatory landscape in Australia. Legally, the the trustee is the contracting party for all service providers to the trust, and therefore it's very important to engage with the trustee early on in the piece. As you mentioned earlier, equity trustees have more than 400 funds, so we're very familiar with products of different complexity and asset classes. And we have about 130 asset managers with more than half of them being based offshore. In the Australian context, is there any difference between a trustee and a responsible entity? Yes, there is. Uh, So where a trustee is appointed, the fund will not be regulated by the local regulator, which in Australia is the Australian Securities and Investments Commission or ASIC. When a fund is unregulated, typically the product would only be available for wholesale clients And the Corporations Act defines what a a wholesale client is with a much higher bar in terms of financial substance and experience of investing in complex products. If a fund is registered with ASIC, the trustee then uh, becomes what is known as a responsible entity. And here the responsible entity's role is essentially the same, but there are a number of additional requirements and oversight for the fund. Now, the reason for this is because a registered fund is generally available to retail investors, and therefore the oversight required to govern the fund increases to protect those retail investors. There's been an enormous amount of regulation increase for retail funds in recent times, so it is important to partner with a responsible entity that keeps up to date with all the latest regulation guidelines. Of the 400 funds that we look after, More than 300 are available to retail investors where we act as a responsible entity. And to put that into context, uh, the Australian superannuation pool is over 3.3 trillion now with retail money making up a significant portion of that. 
what is the role of the trustee responsible entity on an ongoing basis? Yeah, so the, the role of the trustee or the responsible entity is primarily a fiduciary role to protect the interests of business. Equity Trustees provides a wide range of tailored services that enables our clients to structure, establish and operate funds that comply with the Australian legal and regulatory landscape. So the trustee can provide true independent oversight of the fund by monitoring all the ongoing regulatory compliance and the performance of the service providers. The trustee can recommend fund structures and assist in product development. The trustee will prepare all of the scheme documentation, including registration of the fund, if it's a retail fund, and also the disclosure documents to the investors. The trustee will monitor all the service providers, including the custodian, the administrator, the registry provider, and of course, the investment manager. As trustee, we would uh, obtain regulatory approvals and authorizations to operate the fund. We would establish all the local governance frameworks and compliance plan to ensure the trust complies with the local laws. The trustee would also appoint, manage and coordinate any external service providers, including tax advisors and auditor. And we would also prepare and lodge any required reporting for the fund. So as you can see, our role as a trustee is extremely broad and we're expected to be across all aspects of running a fund, including regulation, tax, asset lodgements, termination, the list really goes on. Johnny, um, how important is a, a high-quality trustee responsible entity? What, what can go wrong? Yes, yeah, so it is very important to, to appoint a top-tier trustee. Larger trustees, particularly ASX-listed trustees, will have strong balance sheets and deep expertise in providing trustee services. Equity Trustees was founded in 1888, and being a trustee is really core to what we do. So we are not distracted by providing other services such as asset management or fund administration. Our model really focuses on being the experts of what we do and outsourcing other roles to the other industry experts. We've seen a few issues with smaller trustees who have taken on quite complex appointments, but they don't have the expertise or experience to handle them which has been detrimental to both the investors and the fund manager's reputation. Now, the capital requirements for a trustee are extremely high, and we've even seen several smaller trustee groups, unfortunately, go into liquidation or administration, which has caused a real challenge for investors to unwind that position. So as products get more complex over time and managers are looking to diversify their product offerings, Having an experienced trustee will prove even more important in the future. Assuming a fund manager decides they want to establish a locally domiciled vehicle in Australia, what are the main differences in obligations between an unregistered and registered management pension scheme? So the key difference in obligations between a registered and an unregistered managed investment scheme typically relate to regulation and filings with ASIC. So generally, a scheme must be registered if it is offered to retail investors or if it has more than 20 members. So the key documents for a registered fund would include a constitution. So for a registered fund, the trustee or the constitution must be lodged with ASIC and it must contain provisions that are suitable for retail investors. The registered fund must also have a compliance plan lodged uh, with ASIC, which is audited annually. And the compliance plan sets out the measures to ensure that the trust complies with the local laws and the Corporations Act. A registered scheme must have an annual audit on the financials of the fund, 
while an unregistered scheme does not have that requirement. There's a much higher bar in terms of disclosure for a registered scheme. Um, a registered scheme is required to provide investors with a product disclosure statement or a PDS that sets up all the key information about the fund and its investments. The PDS must also provide investors with greater transparency and consistency in fees and costs under the regulation guide RG97. If a fund allows for retail investors, there must also be a, a target market determination or a TMD in place. And that document's really designed to describe who the product is appropriate for, who the appropriate target market is, and outline any conditions about how the product can and cannot be distributed to investors. So regulated schemes have much more compliance. Unregulated, unregulated schemes are not subject to the same level of regulation. Uh, and potentially there is less protection for investors in an unregistered scheme. Now, one of the main drivers behind whether or not to register a managed investment scheme is often the target market or the investor base being wholesale or retail. So to supervise a registered fund, the trustee must also hold the appropriate AFSL to act as a responsible entity rather than a trustee. Is there any benefit in a manager establishing a direct fund or relying on a feeder fund into an offshore vehicle? So there are definitely several factors to look at when considering a launching, whether considering to launch a direct fund or a feeder fund. Now, typically the costs of running a feeder fund would be less than the costs associated with a direct strategy. While most of the service provider costs may be similar, Custody and transaction costs of running a direct strategy can often be higher, particularly if the fund invests into more unusual markets, such as emerging market strategy, as the custody costs to hold the assets will often increase. In some cases, a feeder fund may be simpler to manage if the terms of the local feeder fund match the offshore master fund. For example, they're both daily priced, they have co-terminus accounts, there's similar service providing, there's matching liquidity provisions. Although having said that, the complexity of the strategy will likely depend on the particular asset class. Often asset managers will want to leverage an existing track record, which can be achieved in some instances by setting up a feeder fund. So if an asset manager has a quite large offshore master fund with a good track record, then a feeder fund is a potentially attractive prospect as they can look to leverage that performance. And this strategy would also be a good consideration if the manager is wishing to have a rating for their product. Now, one of the challenges for feeder funds relates to taxation and the controlled foreign corporation rules or the CFC rules for Australian feeder funds may have tax implications on Australian re residents who wish to invest in offshore funds. Under the CFC rules, Australian residents may be taxed on any income that the fund generates from an investment in another foreign entity or company. So there are careful considerations that must be looked through before setting up a fee of funds. And of all the funds that we have, almost 30% are fee of funds, and this is definitely a trend that is increasing. Multi-unit class funds have grown strongly over the last few years. What benefits do they bring to a fund manager as opposed to single class funds? So 
one of the main advantages or attractiveness of the multi-class fund is diversification of asset classes. So in theory, a multi-class fund could invest into any asset class in the same vehicle by using attribution managed investment trust rules, although this has not been fully tested in the market. So diversification is key. Managers with multi-class funds can also offer different fee rates to different investors. So they could have a wholesale rate, uh, an institutional rate, or a retail rate. And by using different classes within the same vehicle, they can offer different management fees for those particular investors. Managers can also offer hedged or unhedged versions of the same strategy with the use of multiple classes. And by offering an additional class, a manager could even open up their fund to offshore investors, such as a New Zealand class of investors or a Singapore class of investors. In addition to this, one trend that we're seeing recently is managers looking to list a single class of their fund on one of the local exchanges. And really, that's to give them retail access. So as we can see, our clients are using lots of ways uh, to get the benefit of the multi-class fund as their products become more complex over time. Somewhat related to uh, my previous question, is listing a fund on a local exchange like the ASX a viable alternative? And, and what are the options for fund managers? Yeah, so it really is a viable option. It's a very attractive option. Equity Trustees has 12 listed funds, and those funds are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, ASX, or SIBO. And there's been a, a very growing trend towards having a listed product in a manager's suite of products, again, to target the, the retail market. So a number of our clients are listing a fund, or as I mentioned earlier, even just listing one class of their fund, which allows them to have wholesale clients in an unlisted class and retail clients in a listed class. So it broadens their distribution. Today, the options to list a, a class or a fund in Australia are really with two exchanges, which is the ASX or SIBO, and we have funds that are listed on both exchanges. Now, there are different listing rules for each exchange, but essentially they are asset class agnostic, subject to meeting each exchange's listing rule requirements. There's a few different options in terms of the vehicle type when listing, and I'll talk about those in a bit more detail. So some fund managers will launch what they call a listed investment trust. Now, these are closed-ended vehicles with locked-up capital. They're typically credit funds looking to raise a significant amount of AUM at launch, so $300 million, $500 million. The money is locked up and can be used particularly, like I said, in, in credit funds. Having said that, there are some challenges with the listed investment trust. They could trade at a discount to NAV. Uh, they are potentially subject to some takeover bids or they may require regular buybacks to try and cure that, that NTA discount. Another option for investment managers is looking at a real estate investment trust or a REIT. And this is primarily to use to invest into real assets. Uh, we look after one REIT on the ASX, which invests into US residential real estate. So it gives that exposure to the Australian investors. And finally, an alternative that a manager can look at is launching an exchange-traded fund. So these are managed funds listed on the exchange, which hold a basket of securities similar to, to mutual funds. Currently, we have seven exchange-traded funds that we supervise, and the asset classes in those funds include Australian equities, international equities, property securities, and even bonds. Now, 
a listed fund does have much more additional disclosure requirements and obligations, um, and the responsible entity must adhere to all of those. But again, as I mentioned earlier, they're an attractive vehicle access to the retail market. We're seeing much more innovation across ETF products coming to the market, particularly around gold and precious metals, carbon credit funds, ESG, and even ultra-ethical ESG products. Are there any special considerations, given what we've discussed, for fund managers or GPs holding unlisted assets? Yeah, so holding unlisted assets in a managed investment scheme can present some challenges for managers to consider. So unlisted assets are not publicly traded, uh, which can make it difficult to determine their fair market value. Now, determining the asset value of a level three asset and therefore the net asset value of the fund can prove challenging. And this, this is particularly important during the audit period at year end. Liquidity of the fund can be compromised with unlisted assets. Unlisted assets are typically less liquid than listed assets and therefore may be more difficult to sell or just can take longer to sell down if required. Now, this may cause a lack of flexibility for investors wishing to exit the fund quickly and can be particularly challenging in the retail environment and must be fully disclosed upfront in the offer document to the investors. Also, the financial performance of unlisted assets can be difficult to ascertain and therefore may be difficult for investors to make an informed decision when considering to buy into the fund. And another challenge would be sometimes the fees for holding the assets and transacting these unlisted assets may be higher and therefore the overall costs running that particular strategy may increase for a fund that holds unlisted assets. It's also very important to have an experienced custodian and administrator in place who is familiar with unlisted assets as they do require a different skill set to manage, particularly in challenging market conditions. Now, given the above, these funds are typically marketed to wholesale investors. Um, however, asset managers are increasingly trying to find ways to democratize private market funds and products. So I do expect to see more clients looking to push the boundaries and make these products available to the retail investors. Thank you for your time today, Johnny. Thank you, Dennis.